Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Today's guests will be familiar to some of you. Paula Becca first joined us on Grief Out Loud back in May of 2020, which honestly feels more like 10 years ago rather than just a year and a half ago. Back in episode 148, Paula talked about the wrongful death lawsuit she and her husband filed and won against the bus company who employed the driver who hit and killed her son Hunter as he was attempting to board the bus. Paula's back to talk about her newest book, A Little Book of Self-Care for Those Who Grieve. It's a book Paula wished she could find in those early days after Hunter died, a book filled with beautiful illustrations and short suggestions for how to care for yourself in the immediacy of grief. Reminders to breathe, to eat what you can, to drink water, to seek out comforting fabrics, to move, and more. When Hunter first died, Paula had the experience that so many in grief do. She couldn't concentrate at all. The thought of reading a whole page of text, never mind an entire book, seemed laughable. So she decided to write the book she most needed back then. Paul and I talk about what she remembers about those early days of grief, what helped her the most, and how her own grief has changed how she shows up for others who are now entering the world of grief. Paula, welcome back to Grief Out Loud. I'm uh, excited for our second conversation for the show today. Thank you so much, Jenna. I'm really excited to talk with you today. And I know we're going to spend a lot of our time talking about your latest book called A Little Book of Self-Care for Those Who Grieve. And I'm I'm curious, for those who were unfamiliar with your story and your background, can you tell us a little, like, what was your personal draw to writing this book? Sure, I would be glad to. So um, my backstory is that in uh, June of 2017, my 25-year-old son Hunter was killed, um, traumatically, he had been a passenger on a Greyhound bus and the bus driver left early and um, ran over him, killed him. I was obviously thrown into uh, an enormous amount of grief. And because I'm a writer and a reader, I uh, reached for books to hopefully try to help me understand how to get through this this grief um, as I look to books to help me get through everything in my life. And what I found is that there are quite a number of grief books and there are some wonderful grief books. But for me, in the very, very early days of bereavement, I just did not have the attention span to get through more than, you know, maybe a line or two at a time. I certainly felt that my eyes, which were, you know, salty and dry and crusty and from crying if they if I weren't wasn't actually crying at that moment uh, I just couldn't the, the pages hurt it hurt to look at them and I felt like I wished that there was a book that was more like um, eventually as I thought about it I thought like a children's picture book that would be comforting that would um, 
you know, have pictures and just a little bit of text on each page. I looked, I thought, oh, there must be a book like this because I know that, you know, many people feel um, that they have no attention span and in early grief. And I, I didn't find what I was looking for. And as I was going through the weeks, months, um, first year of grieving Hunter, I started, you know, when I couldn't sleep or if I was driving in the car, a phrase would sometimes come to me that um, I felt would be a comforting phrase or a helpful phrase or a supporting phrase uh, in a book like this. And eventually I had a basket of these little, these little phrases. Uh, and so that was, that was what I had to get started on uh, writing a little book of self-care for those who grieve. And that's what made me feel like there was a need for it. Yeah, I hear over and over again from people that sometimes even a year or two years after someone dies, it's so hard to sit down and really focus for more than, like you said, a line or a paragraph, and that many people turn to podcasts or uh, more audio-centered things that they can turn on and off. So this book definitely fills that void of folks who just want to sit down and, and open up a page and just get one thing they can do in that moment. And you know, it's one of the things I really loved about it. It's so focused on simple things people can do in that immediacy. And I'm curious because I know that's that's what you were going through and that's what was the kind of the draw to write the book. And now we're sitting, you know, just over four years since Hunter died. And I'm wondering what are the words you would use to describe the way your grief feels now? I would say that my grief now feels mostly uh, still and that is still like a body of water that you know, you see it's large, um, but it's mostly still, you don't see a lot of, of waves and bumps. Um, and it's that way. Most of the time, it's a huge body of water and that body of water is the grief, but it's, it's not roiling most of the time. Although as with many people's experience, all of a sudden out of nowhere, sometimes with no reason that I can think of, there's a tsunami or, you know, a big sea monster comes <laughs> jumping out of that calm water. And sometimes it's, it's things, you know, it's times that you can anticipate, um, for me coming up to anniversaries, like certainly coming up to the anniversary of his death, coming up to the anniversary of his birth, which of course was a very happy day for me. Um, but anticipating that day is often worse than the day itself. One of the things that I've done and that I encourage people to do in a little book of self-care for those who grieve, if it feels good to them, all of my suggestions are just suggestions. You know, some things will work for some people and some for others. But um, for me, it's really helped to kind of ritualize the idea of those kind of days, um, always with the caveat that it's my ritual. And if one year I don't feel like doing it, I won't do it. But, you know, there's simple things um, on the anniversary of Hunter's birth. I um, have little stones, like I go to a rock shop and I get hematite and amethyst, and then I take them and I go to a couple of parks that we played in when he was little. And I, I kind of leave them on a piece of play equipment and I have a little special kind of a blessing that I say for the child who finds it. And I do that because I remember him sometimes finding a stone or a bead or something that someone had dropped in a park. And it was just always completely magical 
to me, that's taking a day that's hard, a day where I think about his absence and I mean, giving myself something to do, but also trying to, to pass a little tiny bit of delight to another child. And then on the anniversary of his death, my husband and I have developed a kind of a practice of going to um, one of our wonderful independent bookstores here in Seattle and going to the children's department and picking eight or 10 picture books. And uh, we donate those to a literacy organization. It's, it's really special because it's the only time of the year that I really look at picture books and it's so comforting and wonderful. And we do that together. And again, it's a way to take a day that can be extraordinarily hard and at least have a plan for something that might be not terrible to do. Well, and it's a, it's an amazing overlap or interplay of having a plan. So a structure that you could choose to engage with or not when the day actually arrives, but just knowing there's like kind of an insurance policy of what's going to come. And then to do something that really, you know, honors the magic of childhood and times that you and Hunter spent together and things that, you know, delight that he would find out in the world. I was really struck too when you said still, because I know you were talking about still water, but I also think about still here. You know, this idea that grief is still with us, even if it does change shape and temperature and things like that. And they absolutely, that's a, that's a very good, uh, a good point. And my understanding of grief, I don't ever expect to be finished grieving. You know, grief changes its engagement with you over time. And I'm sure subsequent bereavements will bring their own lessons, but um, the idea of it being still here, it will always, my grief will always still be here. And and that's okay. I'm okay with that. So for yourself, looking back, I know a lot of the suggestions that are in your book come from what you were experiencing in those early days, but could you share a little more of what kind of the first few days and weeks and months of grief felt like and how it affected you? Sure, absolutely. You know, the the very first thing looking back that I remember, I mean, of, of course, people were saying you're in shock. And I said, I'm not in shock. I'm not in shock. And later I realized I absolutely <laughs> was in shock. I did not belong behind the wheel of a car. You know, I uh, do remember having grief just well up when I was behind the wheel and having to pull over and thinking I shouldn't be driving and trying to do something about that. And also, I was just in, especially the first week after Hunter's death, I was so thirsty and I would drink water and drink water, drink water. And I just did not quench my thirst. And I thought, what is wrong with me? And I finally called my naturopath. I described what had happened and, and you know, why, why can't I quench my thirst? And she said, well, you know, Paula, I think it's adrenaline because when you're grieving, you know, you, you just, you're having a fight, a flight or fight reaction, you know, where your adrenaline is just coursing through you. And so she said, put lemon juice in your water and that will change the electrolytes and that will help the water that you're drinking to quench your thirst. And I was like, okay, this is something concrete I can do. And I bought a bunch of lemons and then, you know, I had lemon juice in my water for months after that. And it actually did help. It really, I was still really thirsty, but at least the water that I was drinking was, was quenching my thirst. Um, and I had a lot of physical manifestations really, I still sometimes have them, but especially in the early weeks and months of, of my bereavement, 
I had this one spot in my back, like just felt like a, a baseball or something of stress. And I tried everything I could to roll it out. And finally, I was working with um, a really gifted massage therapist who, who was very kind of spiritual as well as, as being a massage therapist. And she said, that's just where your body is holding. That's it's especially holding grief right there. So that's like your grief, knot. And at once I knew that I, I could sort of name it and that it helped me to be able to sort of realize that that's what it was. And I think that realizing it helped my muscles to relax a little bit. And, you know, I still get work on it and I still sometimes will feel it and think, oh, my body is, you know, showing the grief through that grief, not for me anyway, to have a name for it or to understand it instead of being confused by it is really helpful. So as I was reading your book, you know, there's these really tangible suggestions of put lemon in your water, so many reminders to breathe woven throughout. And as you were just talking now, I was having this idea that these suggestions, they don't fix the grief, you know, they probably don't even lessen the grief and that so much of what we say to people who are grieving, like you have to learn to sit with it, you have to be with your grief to not avoid your grief or to not, you know, run away from your grief or all these things that we hear about that. And I'm always like, well, what does that actually mean to sit with the grief? That's kind of an abstract concept. And what I love about the suggestions in your book is they almost help buffer or bolster the capacity to sit with something, but they don't lessen the something, if that makes any sense, you know, of like, if you break your leg, all the things you might do to make yourself more comfortable while your bone is healing, don't actually make the bone heal, but they make you have maybe less suffering. Like if you prop your leg up rather than letting it hang off of the couch, or if you don't walk on it or things like that, that help the the healing process, whatever that looks like in your body or in your, in your heart happen without being interrupted so much by these strains. I love, I love that Jenna. And that, that is exactly what I wanted the book to do. I, I did not want the book to be instructional, like tick, a, tick a box out after each of these things. And then I wanted every piece of the book to say, your grief is seen, your grief is seen. And so sitting with it to me, you know, we learn that over time, our grief teaches us that over time. And, and really part of that is understanding, and it takes a long time to understand this, but that that bereavement is permanent. That person is not coming back. Learning to sit with that is really hard, but I wanted each page of the book to say, I see you in this, in this grief. I see you. And I think being seen, you're never going to fix somebody's grief, but to help them know that they their grief is seen, I think is really the best thing we can do to comfort someone. Are there one or two other things that you um, maybe were surprised by that were helpful in that bolstering of your self in the immediacy of grief? Yes. Um, one thing is that I felt absolutely compelled to start swimming, which I had never, I mean, I knew how to swim. I swam as a child, but I had never sort of craved swimming. And I began to feel like I needed to swim almost every day. And I thought a whole bunch about why that was. And I, and I still swim almost every day. Uh, it was really hard during the 
height of lockdown because I bought a wetsuit and I had to swim in Lake Washington. It was really <laughs> cold, <laughs> really cold. So glad when the pool opened again. Um, but I, I've thought a lot about that and I think it, it has something to do with, and I'm sure someone has done research on this, but it's like a somatic nervous system kind of thing where the water pushes against your skin and you push against the water and it's sort of you know, there's resistance, but you can do it. And somehow moving through the water successfully felt like a way to teach my body to move through grief. So, and another thing, this is really weird. I didn't put it in the, in the book, but I want to say it because I think that it's really important to sort of pay attention to what feels like it might be helpful. Sometimes there are really weird things. Like I, have curly hair. And for years and years and years and years and years, maybe 20 years, I did not own a hairbrush um, because you'd, if, you know, if I brushed it, it turned into this giant mop. So I would just like scrunch it up with product, blow dry it, call it good. Somehow about mm, a year after Hunter was killed, I started having this craving to feel the feeling of brush bristles going across my scalp. And I was like, I don't know what that is. That's really weird. So I resisted it for a while. And then finally I was like, okay, okay. Self <laughs> grief. You want a hairbrush? I'm going to go buy you a hairbrush. So I went, bought a hairbrush, came home, brushed my hair really hard. And it felt really, really good. And I don't know why my scalp needed to be touched in that way, but it did. And so I don't, use the hairbrush every day, but sometimes I have that feeling you need to brush your hair. And I, I, it's really brushing my scalp and I do that. And again, it's like, I don't know why my body needs that, but certainly not hurting anything, <laughs> not hurting anybody. So I, I give myself that and we can develop a practice of, of being kind to ourselves and listening to ourselves, giving ourselves what our body tells us we need on a, a daily, hourly, minute by minute time frame, and that that is a really strong way to care for yourself in grief is by listening to yourself. And I'm not saying that that's easy. There's so much else going on, um, and especially when you have other people in your life who are also grieving the loss, and maybe children or spouse. I mean, I don't mean to make this at all sound simple because it is absolutely not. But I do still think we have responsibility for keeping the oxygen coming in, <laughs> carbon dioxide going out, and we have the responsibility to ask ourselves what we need and give ourselves that if, if that's a safe thing to have. This seems related to one of my other favorite messages in your book, which you invite people to let grief teach them. I wonder for you over these four years, what, what has grief taught you? Mm, that's a very good question. Um, you know, grief is still teaching me. I think initially what grief taught me, and this felt like it happened really quickly, was how many other people were grieving. So I wasn't aware on a conscious level of how many other people were bereaved and had always been bereaved and would be bereaved because that's the state of being a human being. You know, we love people and we lose people that we love and that has always and will always happen. So really right after Hunter's death, I just felt like 
the, all my metaphors are water metaphors. So I felt kind of this, you know, tide just rise up and, and hold me really as if I had lain back on a, you know, body of water, like they tell you, if you're swimming and you can't swim anymore, you're too tired, turn, roll over on your back and float on your back. And I felt like I was floating on the grief of everybody in the world. And that might sound like that would pull you down. It didn't. For me, I felt like, oh my gosh, you know, this is new for me, but this is not new for the world. And I, I have compatriots in this. I am not alone. So that was a big thing. And then as the years have gone by, I hope that my grief has taught me to be more compassionate and more compassionate in, in every moment, in every interaction, because when you're bereaved, uh, it's like your skin is flayed off and little things that, you know, people do unthinkingly can just be excruciatingly painful and difficult to roll with. I just try to go into the world with the understanding that no matter where I go, there's going to be somebody I run into, or maybe a lot of people, even just someone I pass on the street who's grieving. And I just try to carry compassion for my interactions with people. I'm not always successful. You know, I get cross about things too, but, but I try, I try. That's what I try to do is carry that kind of compassion into my interactions with everybody. And I credit my grief with teaching me that. What are some of your hopes for the book? Oh, I really, really hope that this book is a comfort to everybody who, uh, who comes across it. I feel like the book is going to be given. And so it's going to be something that helps people who um, have someone who's bereaved and they don't know what to say to that person. It's going to give them something to put in that person's hands. And that's going to be part of the gift is that they're going to be able to provide that comfort without maybe having the words themselves. I hope that the people who read the book will be able to use it in whatever they want. I could imagine someone, I mean, even angrily, like writing on the pages, I don't want to do this. That's good too. <laughs> or, right. I mean, really, you know, writing their thoughts, using, using the blank space to journal how they're feeling that day, or just letting the pictures comfort them. Um, if any of the ideas are comforting or soothing or seem to resonate, then, you know, that will be a win. I think there's no way in which um, if this book comforts even one person that, that it won't be a win. And I also, um, it's by its, by, by design, it's very small. The book is four by six. And the idea to me, um, I actually was thinking about when I was seven years old and I had this, I had a skipper doll, uh, and I like to take skipper with me everywhere. And I wasn't supposed to take her to church with me, but I would stick her in my purse and I would put my hand in and I would touch skipper and, you know, there in my purse at church when I was seven. And I thought that a book like this could be kind of a, a touchstone, a talisman. Sometimes when we're grieving, there are certain things that help to tether us to, to this world. And, 
you know, for, for me, that has been a, you know, different times, like certain special jewelry that I associate with Hunter. But I also think um, that a book can be that tethering mechanism and something that you can, that you can hold on to uh, and take with you everywhere. So that's one thing that I hope the book is able to do. Well, I've certainly been carrying it around with me as I've been preparing for this interview and the illustrations are beautiful and it's just a very inviting book um, and the weight of it feels good too, which I think, again, so much of what you've talked about with your own grief and the suggestions in the book are very body somatic centered, you know, of the sensations of things that we can do to comfort um, our bodies and ourselves and our grief. And you went through your own grief with Hunter's death and we're experiencing you know, the days and months and weeks after that. And then you wrote a book about it to sort of reflect upon that time period. And with those two things, how have you changed the way you show up for friends or family or community members when they are in that, you know, sudden aftermath of having had someone die? Um, Yes, I, I feel like I, first of all, I, I do show up with, with me, you know, I would have probably before shown up with, you know, a casserole or something, and I will still bring a casserole or, you know, something uh, physical that could be consumed if people were able to be consuming things. But I think that what I mostly do is, is, uh, is just try to be with people if they're ready to, when they're ready to like to go to go on a walk or to, to, to talk about their person. I mean, and a lot of people who um, feel like they don't know what to do when someone is, is bereaved uh, feel like they can't talk about the person. Whereas if you talk to, (laughs) and you talk to people in grief all the time, I would guess that almost everyone says they do want to talk about their person. I mean, and so I will talk with them as long as they want to about their person. And I also feel like, one thing that I understand better, um, having been bereaved is that like, you don't have, you don't have to, you don't want to have a whole bunch of time at a visit, like a visit of, you know, 10 minutes can be fine, or maybe a half an hour walk around the block is fine. And that I also feel very much. And I try to make sure that anybody that I'm meeting up who's, who's, um, in grief, um, knows this, that like, if they decide that they're not up for it, just, send me a text because I think that people in grief should absolutely have 100% permission to, you know, take their grief temperature uh, and say, I am not feeling like being with somebody today, or even I'm not feeling like with being with that person today, you know, that's all fine. You don't have to tell that person that, but you, you know, that you, you have a hundred percent permission five minutes before the get together to say, I'm really sorry. I'm not up for it today. You know, I know you love me and let's do this another time. Um, that that's really, really important. How that allowance for, um, recognizing that grief can change minute to minute. And then what we need in our grief can change minute to minute. Well, Paula, as we come to the end of our conversation today for listeners who want to, uh, access the book, or learn more about you or your work, some of your previous writings, like what's the best way for people to find you in the book? So um, you can find the book at any bookstore. Um, You can, if your bookstore doesn't carry it right now, it can be ordered all the independent bookstores, the chain bookstores can get it on Amazon. 
you can get it um, actually also as an audiobook. And I will say that I think that that's going to be very comforting for some people. Maybe I imagine if someone's having trouble sleeping in the middle of the night, that they might listen to it in a kind of a meditative way. It's beautifully recorded by um, Heather Henderson, who's a well-known audiobook recorder. Um, and you can find me at my website, which is paulabecker.org. Well, listeners, I will put all those links in the show notes, as well as a link to the conversation Paula and I had uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic uh, about her grief, about Hunter, about the wrongful death lawsuit that was a part of that experience. So there's, uh, you can listen to more of Paula and I's conversation. And Paula, thank you for the book, for reaching out to me, for being part of the show, for yeah, just creating this offering for so many people. I'm really grateful. Thank you so much, Jenna. And thank you for Grief Out Loud. I am a regular listener and I have um, learned so much about the nuances of other people's grief and that has helped me to understand my own better. So I appreciate the work that you do so much. Well, thank you. It's always gratifying to hear that the show is making a difference in listeners. As always, thank you, because again, the show wouldn't mean anything if you were not tuning in. So if the show is helping you, please feel free to share an episode with someone that you think might also be helped by it. You can reach out to me at griefoutloud at Dougie, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. That's also our website, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G, where you can find out more about our local programming, our free resources, our past episodes, pretty much anything you want to know about Dougie Center or about the ways that we support children and families in grief. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Mm -hmm.